Yes, Lord, it is good to worship you. And now as we turn our attention to what you want us to hear today, the message that you have for us in your word, uh, we pray for attentiveness, Lord. We pray that your spirit would guide us, lead and direct us. We pray this all in your name. Amen. You can have a seat. Good morning. Hope you're having a good day so far. I want to take you to Acts chapter 1. I was thinking about this. So we celebrated Easter, and you know what a blessing it was to be together last week. So now what? <laughs> yeah, so now what? That's behind us, right? Well, it's not really the way we want it to work. And yet, no doubt, sometimes we treat it that way, even in our own lives. Today I want to talk to you about what happens in the weeks to come after the resurrection to the disciples, uh, in part what happens right before Jesus ascends to heaven. There's this 40 days of things that were going on that the scriptures don't give us a lot of detail on and yet give us some. We know that the disciples at some point leave Jerusalem, they go up to the Galilee, and then at some point they come back. And that's what we're going to look at today here in Acts chapter 1. And I want us to pay close attention to the message that he has for his disciples right before he leaves and, and goes back to the Father, because I believe that message is still just as important for us today. And as we look at that, I want to talk today about why playing it safe, church, oh, we would never do that, why playing it safe, church, might not be the place where God wants us. In fact, it might be the place where we miss out on experiencing the great blessings that God has for us. Why playing it safe might not be the place you want to be living in. So go with me to Acts chapter 1. I want to read verses 1 through 11. It's a decent portion of Scripture here. So I'll read it all for us. There's first an introduction that Luke records of this continuation, in a sense, of the Gospel as he records the Acts of the Apostles. Reading in Jesus' name, here's the introduction. In the first book, O Theophilus, so we know who he's writing to, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Jesus, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs. What do you suppose some of those proofs were? One, he's standing before them. Two, you can see the nails, scarred hands. You could see the spear that punctured his side. You could see him standing before him, as we talked about last week, as he ate before them. And the many disciples that he stood before. Interesting time as he appears to many people. Coming and going, that in itself has a message, more on that later. Verse 4, 
verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his sufferings by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. So he's doing some teaching, not anything new in a sense, as some cults want us to believe, but he's teaching them the same things he was teaching them while on earth, reminding them of what he was doing. We'll get into that too. Verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father. We're, we're real good at waiting, aren't we? Okay, okay. But wait for the promise of the Father, which He said, You heard from Me. For John baptized with water, but you will baptize with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, from His ascension, it would be ten days. So, verse 6, When they had come together, they asked Him, Lord, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the seasons that the Father has fixed by His own authority. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all of Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And when he had said these things as they were looking on, he was lifted up and a cloud took him out of their sight. And while they were gazing into heaven, you can picture it with me. As he went, behold, two men stood by them in white robes. We have every reason to believe these are angelic beings who are standing before them. Often, when the Bible talks about angelic beings, they use these terms, and, and these men in white apparel is just another picture, giving us a picture of what it actually looked like. Verse 11, and said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. I want you to think about what the messengers are saying to these disciples. Don't overlook in the miraculous nature of the text the, the message. Another way of saying what they proclaim to them as they're gazing into heaven is what are you doing? What are you doing? What are you doing? Ever been so fascinated or enchanted with something that you just stood there with your mouth wide open? It was some years back. Someone in the first service said it was 2017. I don't recall. But we had a uh, solar eclipse. And it happened, I think, kind of in the afternoon. The reason I remember that particular eclipse is I was leaving work and I was going somewhere to a to a meeting, and people were out on their lawns. Some people were actually on the top of their, uh, their, their roofs, and, and, and there was people on the street corners, and they're all staring up at the sun. And it just looked so funny. <laughs> I wish I would have filmed it. Anyway, and, and I'm driving, and people are out in their yards doing this, you know, with a piece of paper with those funny-looking glasses, Right? And so I'm like out my window doing this, you know, realizing that they told you not to stare into the sun for a reason. Yeah. Even when I parked and got out, I still looked up. It shows how bright I am. Seriously. Yeah, my eyes hurt the whole day and still to this day hurt. No. <laughs> Staring and gazing up at the sun. It's a picture I get here, isn't it? Picture we get here. Staring into heaven. I'm, I'm glad the 
messengers said, hey, what are you doing? He is, he is coming back. Don't just stay there. Mouth wide open, gazing. wonder how often we need to hear that in our own lives. Stop staring. You know, implied in this message is really three things. One, His return is imminent. Two, He is kinging. Another way of saying that. He is establishing something here on earth. Thirdly, we're a part of it. There's work to be done. There's a reason we aren't just to stay in one place, hide out. Let's start with that first thing. Jesus is not leaving for good, as we might say. He will return. In fact, His return is imminent. And, and remember, of course, church, a day to God is like a thousand years, and a thousand years to God is like a day. So His timing is not our timing, another way of saying that. But hear this now. His return is imminent. He will return visibly and personally. In fact, we even know where He will return to. Look what Zechariah 14.4 says. It says, On that day His feet shall stand on the Mount of Olives that lies before, be, before yeah, Jerusalem on the east, and the Mount of Olives shall be split in two from east to west by a very wide valley so that one half of the mount shall move northward and the other half southward. If you've ever been in this region of the world and if you've ever been on the Mount of Olives or in the city overlooking the Mount of Olives, beautiful, beautiful place just outside the city of Jerusalem, you'd know this. You'd know that there is not going to be a single person in that city that doesn't notice because of the way the city is situated and the Mount of Olives is situated. In other words, what I'm saying is to gaze upon this myself with my own eyes, I can see why God chose this place. And yet what happens is something that none of us can possibly imagine in a sense. By maybe great earthquake, so to speak, as Christ's return, the mountain is split into two. But we're told this in Zechariah, and the messengers tell this to the disciples upon His ascension. Why? In order that we would be ready. The most common picture we're given in the Scriptures of waiting is not actually what we're doing here, although this is good. It's not just the, the study of His Word, although that's good. It's not just prayer. The most common picture of waiting given in Scriptures is being dressed and actively engaging in what He has called us to. And what has He called us to? Well, first consider what He is doing. Jesus is establishing His kingdom now as He sits enthroned in heaven. I like to say with His feet up. Nothing is too difficult for Him. It's not that He needs the time. It's that He is establishing His time just like Israel was being established or renewed as His holy and chosen people as they waited for 40 years in the desert. 40 days, 40 years. 
There's a connection. And to this day we know God is not just waiting for waiting's sake. But no, He's doing something. He's establishing His kingdom. Did you notice what the disciples ask again as Jesus is before them, just before His ascension? What did it say they ask? Lord, will, will You at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? They've asked this like a hundred times now. Think about it. They are obsessed with the when. They're obsessed with really, and, and I hate to say it, but this is what they are saying. Now would be the right timing. We know. Seems like, Jesus, you need a little help. Seems like you don't really understand. Things are broken here, down in this world. Do you care? Do you really care, Jesus? Because things need to be restored now. Are you waiting for a reason? What? Why are you waiting to establish Israel? We are oppressed. Do you see who rules us? And look what they did to you, Jesus. I hate to say it, but it's no different with our attitude towards waiting. When really is, we know better. We know better, God. There's no need for this waiting, or, or is there? What's your when, God? <laughs> when? It's not a coincidence that we've been talking about this over a number of weeks. When, God? When, when are you going to do this? Because your timing doesn't seem right, God. Well, just as Jesus is establishing His kingdom and as He sits enthroned in heaven, He calls His disciples to be witnesses. Witnesses to the end, ends of the earth. And we are called to be a part of this heritage. Witnesses to the ends of the earth. What does it mean to be a witness? It might seem pretty obvious, right? And yet I think we get this wrong sometimes. A witness is someone who identifies, demonstrates, and authenticates something that has happened quite simply. It implies, though, that one would have first-hand knowledge. So how does that include us? First John 1 gives us some insight on this. So if you wonder what a witness is, you don't have to wonder. It says this, that which is from the beginning, Jesus, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, it says. The life was made manifest. He was born. He, he lived among us. You don't have to wonder. It was real. It happened. And we've seen it. And we testify to it. And we proclaim to you the eternal life. What's the Christian life all about? It's not some religious practice that we're called to, although we are called to obedience. It is to testify of the risen Christ. At his very heart, at his very soul, that is it. 
What is most central is that we are a testimony of the resurrected Christ. It goes on to say, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. And here's where we fit in. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. It almost sounds redundant, but actually the message has biblical theology, theological, excuse me, doctrine in it, which is to say our understanding of the Scripture is quite simply that just as the apostles were eyewitnesses, they have passed on through the experience of the Holy Spirit within us to us, the eyewitness account, and as we have experienced in our own lives, first-hand account, His work and will in our lives, we are to be witnesses. Does that make sense? Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Believe it or not, the term witness is interwoven throughout the Scriptures. This isn't like a new thing. Remember, Israel was called at Mount Sinai to the law in order that they would be set apart as a royal priesthood, a people representing Yahweh before all nations. Priesthood or representative is the Hebrew word witness. As they witnessed the power of God, as God went before them supernaturally in a cloud by day and fire by night. They were witnesses to His great glory as they passed from death to life, as they passed from Egypt across the sea on dry land to Sinai. They were witnesses of His glory. And, and it didn't just end there. He leads them to Sinai where Moses goes before God on the mount and receives the law, a witness to His perfect Word, His law, so that they could be consecrated for Him. And now the establishment of the prophets and kings in Israel years later to the day Jesus would walk the earth, the witness of God, the Son of God, God in the flesh, representing the Father, and the grace and the love that God has for us. And now because of the resurrection and the Holy Spirit, we have been grafted in. And we are called to bear witness through His Spirit, to His truth. So what does it look like, church, to bear witness, to be a witness? You know, the picture that you come up with in your mind is an important one when the question is asked. So I think we have all kinds of notions about what that really is supposed to look like and yet, where I want to begin, as I expound on this a little bit, is that what it really looks like is this. We are called, church, we are called to engage the world. See, sometimes we don't think of it as that. 
But that's what we're being called to. Another way of saying that, our goal is not to create safe spaces and places for people to hide out. Just like the disciples were hiding out in the upper room as they hid in fear for what could happen to them. And I don't blame them. We do it all the time. (laughs) But no, the goal is not to stay in one place to protect ourselves. Jesus warned us of the trouble. In fact, He tells us that as we engage in the world, there will be pushback. Why? Well, because His ways are not the world's ways. Look what John 17, 16, and 18 says. It says, They are not of the world, this is Jesus speaking, in his high priestly prayer, just as I am not of the world. First and foremost, this means that we are not accepted by the world because Jesus was not accepted, and so therefore there is this tension between us and the world, the ways of the world and the ways of God, the kingdom of the world and the kingdom of God. This is why he was teaching on the kingdom. And it's really important for us to consider You know, I think for most of us, our default mode is playing it safe. Wouldn't you agree? Come on, be honest. Yep. Our default mode is play it safe. And here's what can happen. I'm not not saying this out of judgment, we all do it. Here's what can happen. We can start to believe, church, that that is the Christian way. Don't you agree? You know what? Play it safe and you'll be a good person. But that is not the impression I get as Jesus calls His disciples to engage the world. There is this tension though. What does it mean? What does it mean Ways of the world. Well, like, like only the strong survive. That's the ways of the world, isn't it? Or, or um, every person for themselves. I got to get mine. Or uh, me first. Because that's the only way I can survive. Or how about this? Work and earn. And then maybe, just maybe, you'll make it in this life and God will like you. See, in God's kingdom, the opposite is true. In God's kingdom, there is mercy and grace. We don't work to earn our salvation. We don't deserve it, but we don't work to earn it. No, there is mercy and grace, and He proved it on the cross. So just as Jesus proclaimed in His high priestly prayer to us that they are not of the world, we are not of the world, just because, just as I am not of the world, excuse me, 
He goes on to say in verse 18, As you sent me into this world, so I have sent them into the world, and for their sake I consecrate myself that they also may be sanctified, so that they may be made a witness for me. For me. It's like saying more like Jesus. We've been sanctified, made holy through Christ's work on the cross. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. We have been sanctified so that we could be His witness on this earth. By His righteousness, we have been given His Spirit so that we can live out what it is to be His witness on this earth. It's to our advantage that He left. I don't think you could convince the disciples of that at first, and it might even be hard for us still to believe. You know, at first, they're they're questioning Him in the upper room. He says, don't let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. I'm going to prepare a place for you. And they say, but Lord, we, we don't even know where you're going. In other words, please don't. What you were going to establish or what we envisioned you were going to establish, you are going to establish here and now. And now you seem to be throwing this whole thing off. No, they were not at peace. And yet, it's in his ascension that Luke records that following this message of the angels, they do return to the place they were staying in Jerusalem. And it tells us they returned with joy. Something happened in their hearts even as they awaited the Spirit. And it was the It was the promise of the helper. The helper. Kind of a bad analogy, but doing any job around the house is just a little bit better when you have help, right? <laughs> right? That's why my kids can't ever do the dishes alone. <laughs> no, just kidding. No, a helper makes all the difference in the world. What is the Holy Spirit? We have, we have a counselor, an intercessor, a strengthener. Jesus went back to the Father so that His Spirit could be at work in each one of our hearts so that we all could have His presence within us. Look what John 16, 7 says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage. Did you hear that, church? It's to your advantage that I go away, for if I do not go away, the hell, helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment concerning sin because they do not believe, concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer, concerning judgment because the ruler of this world is judged. What this means, and there's a lot to unpack here, 
is that the Spirit helps us see our need and convicts us of who we truly are in Christ Jesus. I want you to see this. Conviction of sin. We all have a picture of what that means. But what does is, what is John 16 tell us? Conviction of sin is not shaming and guilting. No, He convicts the world of their sin. Shame and guilt come from the enemy. Shaming is the work of Satan. Guilt is a natural ramification of sinning. That doesn't come from the Spirit. He is our advocate. He is our counselor. He is our helper. He is our strengthener. What the conviction of the Holy Spirit really is, is the Spirit's work in reminding us that we are forgiven, that we are restored and perfected sons and daughters of God adopted into His kingdom, that we are dear and precious children of the King who have been given the righteousness of Christ. So therefore, that sin we have committed or that sin we continually commit, we have been finally forgiven of. And our true identity is that of Christ for He has gone before the Father. Amen? And that is why Jesus returned to sit in the courtroom at the throne of heaven, interceding before God to stand in our place to plead before God as the Spirit intercedes on our behalf for the forgiveness that He offers each one of us. Yes, we have an advocate. That is the greatest news we could have and it's why the disciples returned with joy and it's why they were empowered to live out what God called them to. And we are no different, I pray. Church, we are no different. We are called to be witnesses just as the apostles were witnesses of His risen body. And because He rose, we can walk in what He has called us to do. We don't have to fear. We don't have to worry. Even when we ask when, He is still with us. And as we trust and are obedient to His will, oh, there is great blessing. I don't know if there is much blessing in serving our comforts any more than we already do. (laughs) We're good at that. I do know one thing, there is great, great blessing in following the King because you've won the victory. Would you pray with me, Heavenly Father? You are victorious and it's why we come into places like this to worship your name, to declare your goodness and to leave here energized to be witnesses of this great love and grace. So Lord Jesus, In each of our lives, Lord, may we respond in faith. 
And if there is anyone here who has never received the grace of Jesus in their heart and the Holy Spirit's work, I just pray they would pray that same prayer that I prayed so many years ago but is still just as real in my heart today. And it is this, Lord Jesus, I ask for your forgiveness and declare that in your forgiveness I am set free. And because I am set free, God, I am a child of God, not a slave to my sins, not a member of that evil kingdom. No, no Lord, I'm a, I'm a child of God. And because of your Holy Spirit in me, I can live freely. And I overflow with your goodness so that others would receive and see your grace. So Lord, I receive you into my heart and your Spirit's work in my life. And as I respond in faith, God, I know your promise is true. That you will never leave us or forsake us. This I know. In Jesus' name, amen.